Luke chapter 12. Uh, that's, that's almost halfway, just to encourage you, <laughs> through, through Luke. Uh, this is a, another one of those passages that's quite, um, it's quite tricky. It would be one you'd love to leave out, but stuck with it. And uh, I, think, I think there's some things we're going to learn and some things we're going to be aware of here in uh, what Jesus teaches. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. We're going to cover verses 1 to 12. Uh, today, Luke chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. We've just sang, to you our hearts are open, nothing here is hidden. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. So over the last few weeks and over the last part of the journey through Luke, this prolonged journey to Jerusalem that starts in about Luke 9, 51 and runs the whole way through to the end, Jesus has in chapter 11 told his disciples as part, I believe, part of the Lord's prayer, part of the model for prayer, but not part of it that we memorize. He has told them to ask for the Holy Spirit persistently and repeatedly. And then there's an incident with the Pharisees where the Pharisees, the authoritative teachers, the leaders, the the rulers of the people of God of that time, see Jesus casting out a demon And they say that he is in league with Satan. And then last week, Jesus basically emptied both barrels at the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers, as he launched into this series of blistering woes against them and the attitudes that they held. And Luke 11 finishes with the Pharisees and the scribes lying in wait, watching him waiting for him to make a mistake, trying to catch him out. And I can imagine the disciples, do you ever just love it when someone who deserves it gets it? <laughs> and you're there to watch. You know? uh, whether that's in a sporting context or, or, or in a movie or, or whatever, but just someone who's had it coming to them. And they finally get it. And I can imagine the disciples standing by Peter and the lads just with a big grin on their faces as Jesus 
empties one barrel at the Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And then he empties the other one at the scribes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And they're thinking, yeah, <laughs> let them have it, Jesus. You know, they're sort of standing behind him just grinning. Um, but to their dismay, they find in this portion, he is capable of saying very strong things to them as well. What I've just read is addressed to the disciples not to the scribes and Pharisees. So if you listened to any of Jesus' words last week and you thought, well, that's for the Pharisees and I'm not a Pharisee, that's for the scribes and I'm not a scribe, today is for the disciples and you are <laughs> a disciple. And, and all of us are vulnerable to the things that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and the scribes last week and we are definitely vulnerable to what he's going to say this week to his own followers. Listen closely, but note that the tone is different. Look at verse 4 if you have your Bible open. I don't have it you know, on the screen right now, but verse 4 as he speaks to them, really strong words. For the first time in Luke's gospel, he refers to them as friends. Very different. He doesn't refer to the Pharisees and the scribes as his friends. He refers to these guys as friends. Jesus has the ability to speak really challenging, penetrating truth and do it in love. Without threat. Without He is warning them, but he's not threatening them. He's not coming down on them the way he came down on the Pharisees and the scribes last week. So it's another difficult passage. I've struggled with the temptation of just leaving it out and getting on to the good stuff about do not worry because that applies to everybody and everybody worries and, and it would be great to have a couple of messages about, about worry and they'll come. But uh, let's, let's just sit with this. Because in this passage, Jesus will deal with possibly the biggest problem in the church throughout the ages. A problem that has driven many people away from Jesus, caused them to reject the gospel, reject the church, reject Jesus. This is not pretty, but it's important. And I said to, the, I said to Sarah on the way in, in the car, I said, listen, don't be trying to find the perfect song to follow up the message. <laughs> Just relieve yourself of that pressure because I don't know many songs about hypocrisy. The warning Jesus gives to his followers in, in verse 1 of chapter 12 is to be on guard. At the end of verse 1, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In one word, hypocrisy, Jesus sums up all of the stuff that he called out at the end of chapter 11 that we went through last week. And he says this to his disciples, you be careful that this doesn't sneak into you. What is a hypocrite? The English word hypocrite comes from the Greek word, you ready for it? Hypocrite. <laughs> It's one of those words that just comes straight over from Greek into English. It's called a transliteration. Another one is baptize. Our word, we, we talk about baptize, that's just the Greek word. It's not changed in any way. And the same here with this word hypocrite. That's, this is where it comes from. And, and it is used in its original context, used for an actor in a theater wearing a mask. I tried to find a picture of a mask to have as a background this morning. But when you Google, do an image search for, for a mask, all you get is face masks in, in this COVID, post-COVID era. And then I thought, I know, I'll put in a search for mask 
theatre. That'll get it. And all I got was pictures of surgeons <laughs> wearing masks in their, in their operating theatre. So it was quite tough getting a picture. But the, the word is about, it's about an actor. It's about someone who is playing a fictitious role and wearing a mask in order to, to be in that character. What is on the outside is different from what is underneath. That's a hypocrite. That's where the word comes from. What you see is not an accurate representation of what is really there. You could describe a hypocrite as someone whose lifestyle contradicts what they claim to believe. I'm going to develop that a bit later, but that's like a simple definition of a hypocrite. It's not merely someone who does not do what they say they will do. If I say I will meet you at 7 o'clock and I turn up at 10 past, I'm not a hypocrite. Okay? Just late. It's not just as simple as that. Someone who does, does not do exactly to, to, the, to, the, to the second what they say they will do. Hypocrisy is deeper than that. And just on a side note as well, as we talk about hypocrisy this morning, if you're battling with sin... If there's something in your heart and you hate it and you've asked the Holy Spirit to come and help you and you're on a process and you're on a journey and you despise that thing and you've maybe confessed it to someone in the church and you're maybe walking with it with them, walking through it with them and, and you're praying about it and, and you hate it, please, you're not a hypocrite. Don't, don't be bringing guilt and shame on yourself because there's something that you're trying to overcome with God's strength. It's different if you've accepted something. It's different if, you, if there's some sin and you're just like, well, it's just okay, I'm going to do that. That, that is dangerous ground. But if there's something you're battling with and you're in process with, with the church, with the Spirit, with God, and you hate it, please don't be thinking that that means you're a hypocrite because there's something in you. Do you understand what I mean? That there's something in you that is not consistent fully with following Jesus. We're all in process. We're all being sanctified. We're all on a journey. We're not making excuses for sin, but I don't want someone who has struggles to, to think that labels them a, a hypocrite. It, I don't believe it does. I think th- this definition that I have on the screen at the minute, someone whose lifestyle contradicts what they claim to believe, I think Jesus would add to that. I think in a Christian context, you know, hypocrisy is going to include all the things that he denounced at the end of chapter 11, spiritually abusive leadership majoring on trivial, little, insignificant matters instead of the more important things, burdening people to burnout, focusing on external behavior that hides a rotten heart. All of this is part of what it means to be a hypocrite. And I think Jesus would would add to this, it's someone whose lifestyle contradicts what they claim to believe and therefore drives others away from the kingdom of God. That's a hypocrite. It's not someone who is struggling with something, prayerfully battling against it. It's someone who who lives in a way that contradicts what they claim to believe. And as a result of that, other people are driven away from the kingdom of God. I think that last bit is important. That is biblically, I believe, what a hypocrite does. And Luke 11 finished or nearly finished last week with, with Jesus saying to the scribes, you have not entered the kingdom and you have hindered those who were entering. That's a hypocrite. Stops people from entering the kingdom of God. There are 
many examples. And this is the sad, sad bit. There, you know, there's a, there's a branch of Christian theology called apologetics. And what a, what a person does, if that's their specialist area, a Christian apologist basically is somebody who responds to those who attack Christianity or who try to debunk it or try to tear it apart. A Christian apologist will defend Christianity. They will intellectually be able to argue a strong case for Christianity. And usually they are remarkably intelligent people. Uh, We have produced a few of our own in Northern Ireland over the years. C.S. Lewis would have been regarded as a Christian apologist. Could defend the faith very intelligently and very articulately. Even closer to home uh, from Armagh, we have John Lennox. And if you've ever watched John Lennox in a debate on YouTube with with someone like um, Richard, his name's gone, Dawkins, um, it's fascinating. And you see John Lennox just incredible intellect, incredible gift for defending the faith. Brilliant. And one of the most famous. Christian apologists of the last few decades is Ravi Zacharias, who was born in India in 1946 and died of cancer about three years ago and was regarded as one of the most powerful and persuasive apologists of our generation. He was incredible to watch. The the memory, the intellect, the, the ability to think on the spot and, and argue a case for the faith. But soon after his death, a long queue of women formed to report that he had sexually abused them. A financial investigation showed that he had mismanaged the funds that were contributed to Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, a huge global ministry. And it became very clear that his leadership style was marked by manipulation and spiritual abuse. In short, he was a hypocrite. A hypocrite who did tremendous damage to many people. I remember reading lots of independent reports that were written, not people who were just looking to attack him or attack Christianity or people who were looking to defend him, but independently written reports. It was horrendous. A public life and a ministry that was a veneer over a rotten heart, consumed by the, what, what some people have called the unholy trinity of money, sex, and par. And those three things have brought down many, many leaders and many ministries in recent years. Many have shown themselves to be hypocrites. Money drives the toxic lie that is the health and wealth gospel. Money, love of money drives that. Those who proclaim that gospel, those who follow it, those who have benefited from it, I believe are hypocrites. I believe they ultimately drive people away from the kingdom of God. Power, spiritually abusive leaders, prominent cases in, in not only in America, but mainly in America, such as Mars Hill Church in Seattle, where huge ministries have just collapsed as a fallout of spiritually abusive leadership. Hypocrisy. That drives people away from the kingdom. Sexual misconduct. Massive churches that you've all heard of in Chicago and in New York. Whose leaders have fallen because of sexual misconduct. And just this morning in the Sunday Times. Another article about a huge Christian youth movement in England. 
whose leader has been accused of mistreating the teenage boys that he mentored and predictably along with it accused of spiritually abusive and manipulative leadership hypocrites and it only it does not only happen in large churches why is jesus so concerned about it what is the, what is the fallout of this it's not just because a hypocrite is a two-faced person who wears a mask Jesus is concerned about this because this drives people away from the kingdom. And I would hate to think that ever, I think it would be one of the most serious allegations you could make to say that, that someone's behavior, conduct, ministry, lifestyle has driven people away from the kingdom. According to a, a Barna report, Barna is uh, an outfit in the United States that, that conducts massive surveys of the church and of culture. And a Barna report published in March this year came with the same conclusion that they have always come when they do this report. The leading cause for non-Christians to doubt the Christian faith is the hypocrisy of professed Christians. That is the number one reason people give for not wanting to be part of church, for not wanting to follow Jesus, for not wanting to take him seriously. That's why Jesus is so serious about this. I'd love to have left it out, (laughs) but it's too important because it drives people away from the kingdom. It gives people an excuse to not take Jesus seriously. You want to have a conversation with someone about Jesus. If they have the ability to just turn and say, yeah, but the church is full of hypocrites. I don't want anything to do with it. It's, it can be hard to come against that because do you know what? So, sometimes it can be true. Jesus refers to it as leaven or yeast at the, the bottom of the screen there, the, the yeast of the Pharisees. Some of your Bibles will say leaven. A substance that in tiny amounts will completely change something whether it's in fermentation of a liquid or whether it's in making bread, a tiny amount will permeate through the whole thing. It's a, it's a biblical picture used over and over again how for a very small amount of something can completely change. And you know that sort of you know, yeast in bread, Whenever if, if, if you're hungry and somebody says, I'm going to make some bread, you're hoping it'll be a scone or pancake or a soda farl. Because if it's bread that requires yeast, you know you're going to have to wait about two or three hours for the thing to to, to work its magic so you can actually eat it. It just subtly gets in. And over a period of time, it transforms that which which, which it is in. And Jesus says hypocrisy is like that. It sneaks in. It sneaks into the heart. A tiny bit gets introduced and it permeates your whole life. And remember, Jesus does not say this to the crowd. He says it to the disciples. And remember again, because I do not want anyone misunderstanding. We're not talking about something that you did this week that you regret and you repented of, you brought before God. We're not talking about you maybe losing, losing your, your temper and apologizing afterwards. We're not talking about, we're, we're not, it's not the issue. We're talking about a deep, settled hypocrisy that lives in a way that is contradictory to what one chooses or claims to believe and drives others away from the kingdom. Jesus 
would have loved some of the clips I was watching on YouTube last night where celebrities and politicians keep on talking after the interview has finished and don't realize the microphone's still on. <laughs> there's, some, there's a cracker one with Mel Gibson and obviously there are many with the Donald and <clears throat> it, it's hilarious um, but it's hilariously embarrassing for the one who, who, <laughs> who doesn't realize their microphone is still on. Jesus says everything that we think is concealed, hidden, will be disclosed. It'll be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. When Jesus says that something will be proclaimed from the roof, that's his way of saying it's going to go viral on YouTube. The microphone is still on. Let every word that comes out of our mouth come out as if the microphone is still on. As if the video camera is still rolling. Because everything will be exposed that is within us. And I wonder why Jesus raises the issue of hypocrisy at this point. No doubt it's got something to do with the fact that he let loose at the Pharisees and the scribes. But I wonder, has it got something to do with in 12.1, a crowd of many thousands had gathered? Did Jesus realize that this moment where a big crowd had gathered, where popularity was increasing, did he realize that this moment was a moment for his disciples in which the seed, the leaven of hypocrisy could sneak into their hearts and start to thrive and do its thing? Because if hypocrisy is, is wearing a mask to cover up who I really am, and listen to this, then ultimately hypocrisy is driven by what other people will think of me. Nobody's a hypocrite when they're on their own. Right? Hypocrisy is driven by the crowd. The crowd comes and Jesus says, be careful. Be careful that something doesn't creep into your hearts, that you're going to live in a way that is ultimately governed by what that crowd will think of you. Remember last week in, in 1143, Jesus condemned the Pharisees because they loved the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They wanted to be seen. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be honored by the crowd, by the people. And later on in 1147, he said, Woe to you, this is the scribes, the lawyers, because you build tombs for the prophets. And it was your ancestors who killed them. And as I said last week, they tended the tombs of the prophets in front of the traveling pilgrims coming to Jerusalem so that people would think well of them. So that the crowds coming up the road to Jerusalem would see these guys fixing up the graves and think, aren't they awesome? Looking after the graves of the prophets. Hypocrisy is driven by the crowd. When the crowd gathers, Jesus says, right, fellas, there's a danger here. At its core, hypocrisy is not a desire to lead a double life. It is the fear of how the crowd perceives us. It is wanting to look good in front of others. And it is driven by fear. It's driven by fear. This is one of the hardest passages, I think, in Luke. Because when you first look at it, you think, he says that. And then there's com something completely different. And then there's something else. And you think there's four things here in Luke 12, 1 to 12, that just appear to be completely separate from one another. But the more I sat looking at it, the more I saw, no, it's not four unrelated things. It is all woven together. 
And he will go on and he will talk about fear immediately after this little bit about hypocrisy. But I want to jump to an example of hypocrisy in Galatians 2. Where Paul comes to Antioch and or, or Cephas, that's, that's Peter, returns to Antioch. And Paul opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, what, what has Peter done that, uh, that has motivated Paul to get in his face and actually call him out on something? And what he has done is, in verse 12 of Galatians 2, Before certain men came from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. This cause, you know, Paul calls it out. He writes it down. The Holy Spirit has seen fit to, the, to, to, to keep it in our Bibles 2,000 years later that Paul got in Peter's face because of hypocrisy. And Peter's hypocrisy, according to verse 12, was because he was afraid of what people would think of him. That drives a hypocrite. I, my hypocrisy comes from the fact that I am concerned, I am driven by what people think of me, and the outcome of my hypocrisy is I drive others away from the kingdom. It is driven by fear of the crowd. So the way that we overcome or deal with hypocrisy is by learning what to actually be afraid of. <laughs> by getting our fear straightened out. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, intimate words. Words of commitment, words of love. Not words of threat, not words of violence and anger, but words of love. I tell you, my friends, don't be afraid. As I say, I used to, you know, I would have read verse 3 and then read verse 4 and thought this is completely different. He's now, Luke's just recorded this random little batch of sayings and chucked them all into a space that he had in chapter 12. But no, it's related. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. Jesus knows that this crowd that is gathering in verse 1, that the disciples are looking at and, and therefore being tempted to act differently in front of, Jesus knows that that crowd's going to turn on him. He knows where he's going. He knows he's going to his execution. He knows they're going to call out, crucify him whenever he gets to Jerusalem. And he knows that the disciples will likewise face death threats in the future. And he says, do not be afraid of them who can only kill your body and do nothing more. That sounds like a lot to us. He says, do not be afraid of them. This is all related to the motivation for hypocrisy. Do not be afraid of them. He says, I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's God, I believe. Some people would argue that that's not God, that that's Satan, but I think it's God. I don't think Satan has that much authority. And that's why he, he, he tells the disciples as well, later on in, in the passage that we're doing today, he tells them at the end in verses 11 to 12, 
When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, authorities, do not worry about how you'll defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. That's still related back to the crowd that is causing fear, that is causing hypocrisy. And Jesus is saying to them, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of it. Fear God. Get your fear pointed in the right place and you'll fear nothing else. But if if we are fearful of what the crowd thinks of us and that's causing us to behave in a different way and I have done this. Fearful about what other people think leading you to act out of character, to act differently. That's because there's a problem not with the other people but with my fear of God. I need to work on that. If I'm having difficulty acting in a way to please others, it's because I'm not fearing God enough. I'm fearing them. Fear him who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. So are we to be terrified of God? Because that sounds terrifying. Like that sounds threatening. Immediately afterwards, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't be, no, no. We're not talking about that kind of fear. Terror. He immediately reassures them of how much they're loved, how much the Father cares for them. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And whether that's a large number or a small number is not the point. The point is, no one on earth knows that fact, knows that piece of data. No one. But God knows. Because that's how much he cares. So our fear of him is not, is not to be a, a threatening, frightening fear. It is reverence and respect. What he thinks of me matters. What others think doesn't. So therefore, our whole lives should confess Christ. In verse 8, you are in a stage, but you're not an actor. You don't put on a mask and play a part that is not true. You're on a stage, but you're proclaiming. You're preaching all the time. This is not the stage. <laughs> Sunday morning is not when you live out your Christian faith. Sunday morning is when we come together and we worship and we encourage one another and we listen to each other's stories and we eat together and we sing and we hear truth. It's a time for building up. But this is not you living out your faith. The problem for so many people is that going to church on a Sunday morning ticks the faith box and then they live like the devil for the rest of the week. This is not you living out your faith. Your stage is at home. Your stage is at work. That's where you live out your faith. That's where you sing your song. That's where you proclaim the truth of the gospel and you confess Jesus publicly before others. It doesn't mean you go up and down the, the walkways and work getting in everybody's face preaching to them. It means how you live, how you work, how you conduct yourself, how you treat people. All of that proclaims that you are a follower of Christ and you do it publicly. That's your pulpit. And I am painfully aware of of those who pull the suit on and play the part on a Sunday morning, yet the way they treat people that they come across in their jobs day to day drives those people away from Jesus. Thankfully, I'm not talking about any of my own colleagues, (laughs) in case you're wondering. I know people who who would be highly active in terms of religious activity But I also know that how they conduct themselves in the workplace is repulsive to those who are around them. That's a hypocrite. 
And that is, there's a gravity about that. You, you know, you, part of you might think, well, well, it's not that big a deal. It is. There's a seriousness and a weightiness about living in a way that drives people away from the kingdom. As I was pondering this, I encountered a, a gentleman called Pope Francis. And I thought his words here were brilliant about hypocrites. He said, they are not capable of truly loving. A hypocrite does not know how to love. They do not have the strength to show their hearts transparently. Hypocrites always hiding the heart and therefore a, a, a corollary of that, an outcome of that is they can't actually love. There are some people in this nation who would never come back to church if you quoted Pope Francis. But that's wisdom. A hypocrite does not know how to love others. And as we finish, Paul says in, in Romans, not Romans 12, that should be Romans 2. At the end of the chapter, he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? In other words, do you benefit from the idols financially? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Wow. Because of you. Because you live a double life. Because you wear a mask. Because you're a hypocrite. Because you claim to follow Jesus, yet you live in a way that is totally at odds with that. And you don't even care. And in the context of our passage, Jesus says in, in verse 8, not verse 8, should be verse 10 there, but I've got the wrong verse up. Let me, let me read it to you, what Jesus says in verse 8. Verse 10. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's one of the hardest things in the Gospels. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, as I say, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that Luke has put 12, 1 to 12 together a lot more carefully than I first gave him credit for. And I'm trying to figure out in that context, why does he talk about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven? Matthew and Mark also talk about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All three of them talk about it in the context of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, to the scribes, or just after speaking to them. Matthew and Mark have it within the passage where Jesus casts out a demon and the Pharisees accuse him of being in league with the devil. Luke has it just after that, separated from it in the same rough context, but just slightly separated. But if I read 12, 1 to 12, and I ask the question, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that will not be forgiven? I come to the conclusion that it's hypocrisy. That it's hypocrisy. 
Because that's the context of the passage. Hypocrisy driven by fear of what others think. Jesus then, in that context, says the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So someone can live their whole life doing the church thing, look the part, follow all the supposed rules, major on the minors, like tithing your parsley, or whether or not you switch the TV on on a Sunday or go to the shop to buy milk on a Sunday. Heavy on those trivial little things. Attend all the meetings. Have the verses on the wall at home and the biggest King James Bible you ever saw in your life. (laughs) But actually they're hypocrites. Because how they treat people on Monday and work has nothing to do with the gospel. And I wonder, I just I put this out lightly because it only just came to me late in the process as I read this passage over and over again. I thought, is that? Is that the thing that when someone arrives before Jesus and they say, We ate and drank in your streets, Jesus, we had communion. <laughs> you know, we, we saw you do miracles and we did things, amazing things in your name. And Jesus says, I don't know you. (laughs) You're a hypocrite. You're not part of my kingdom and you're not part of my family. It's a weighty, weighty thing to be a hypocrite. Because it drives, not only does it drive others away from the kingdom of God, but as, as Luke 11 finished with his words to the scribes, I've lost it. Yeah, you don't get in either. You have not entered and you've hindered those who were entering. It's hypocrisy, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the thing that Jesus would say, no. Your life has been a sham and you've driven others away from my kingdom. No. Ponder that. It's a weighty place to finish. I don't feel like I've tickled your ears. And I want to go to worship now and worship and invite people to, to share, to respond. And it doesn't matter if that's completely unrelated to the message. It's a heavy message. Don't let that stop you from sharing anything else that the Holy Spirit has put on your heart this morning. Let's pray as we sing.